Well, turn with me, if you would, to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 9. You know, as I thought about it, I think it's fitting that we're uh, separated like this a year after COVID first broke out, which was the last time we had to be separated in this way. If you're watching online, I'm preaching to an empty auditorium. Why the separation? Well, as you may have heard, I don't have any symptoms yet, but Tuesday I was exposed to someone who has COVID and they strongly recommend up to 14 days of isolation if you know you've been exposed. And so here I am. And there you are. Just like a year ago when most all of us were isolated and we did this all the time. Why is it fitting that we're meeting like this a year later? Well, as I thought about it, it's kind of timed to the very verse. To the very love we'll see that we ended with when we last met in this way uh, a year ago. So maybe God's trying to remind us of something. Today we come to really a milestone in our study of Romans. The book is divided pretty cleanly into three parts, and we've just completed the first part, part one, Romans 1 to 8, where we see the gospel really uh, analyzed, the gospel unpacked. And a good part of Romans 8 is a concluding celebration of the greatest gifts of the gospel in this last chapter of part one which is what I talked about in those fireside chats for those of you who were here a year ago that I gave in my home in lieu of actual sermons. We jumped, if you remember, from Romans 2, from the judgments of God that we heard about just before we stopped meeting at church, to Romans 8, just after we stopped meeting at church, to focus on our hope uh, during a time of great uncertainty. We looked at the hope that can serve as really an anchor for our soul through COVID or whatever. I was teaching from my home and you were in your homes when we saw that the last part of Romans 8 is really a symphonic celebration in four parts extolling the four greatest gifts of the gospel. We saw our identity in verses 14 to 17, our glory in verses 18 to 25, our destiny in verses 26 to 34, and then finally, our security, our security in his love in verses 35 to the end, to verse 39. After we finished the chapter, I went back to preaching in person, back to where we left it off in Romans 2, with more about the judgments of God as they cycle through history and in our day. And over this last year, we've worked our way now through chapters 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 to exactly where we picked it up in Romans 8 a year ago during our time of uh, isolation. Last week, we ended with verse 14. And last year, we started with verse 15, and we worked our way, as I said, to the very end, to verse 39. This week, we'll move on to the next verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. And in doing that, we come really full circle, because it all pivots, the end of Romans 8, the beginning of Romans 9, it all pivots on the love of God, as we'll see. So at last we've completed part one of the book, Romans 1 to 8, though in a different order than it was originally written. The gospel analyzed. 
But now in chapters 9 to 11, in part 2, we'll see really the gospel nationalized. So much so that Paul says in 1126 that all Israel will one day be saved to embody the gospel nationally. And then finally, in part three, chapters 12 to the end, chapters 12 to 16, we'll see the gospel uh, actualized as we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, which is how Paul sums up this third section in chapter 13, verse 14. So we move today from the gospel analyzed to the gospel nationalized, Romans 9, 10, and 11, three chapters in which Paul focuses on Israel. There are three very theological chapters, but Paul begins it on a highly, deeply, uh, movingly uh, personal note, which we'll focus on today. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 9, where Paul says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You know, as I was reading through this passage this week, it reminded me of a question I asked my mother way back in the 60s when I was in junior high school. All of a sudden, it came into my mind that I just had to know something about her, and so I asked her. I asked her this. I said, Mom, uh, if somehow things worked out so that you had to choose between me going to hell or you going to hell, which would it be? Kids say the darndest things, don't they? And they can ask the hardest questions. Reminds me of what a little girl said to her teacher, a very secular teacher. You may have heard the story, and it's kind of related to this. She was talking to her teacher about whales. Uh, the teacher said it was physically impossible for a whale to swallow a human because even though a whale is a very large mammal, its throat is very small. Uh, the teacher reiterated that a whale could not swallow a human. It was impossible. Uh, but the little girl said that Jonah was swallowed by a whale. No, it can't be. Science proves it, said the teacher. Well, the little girl said, well, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask Jonah. The teacher asked, well, what if Jonah went to hell? To which the little girl said, then you ask him. <laughs> Mom, if somehow things worked out so you had to choose between me going to hell or you going to hell, which would it be? At the time, I was pretty, feeling pretty low about myself and pretty, pretty unloved, though I didn't really put it to words. It was kind of unconscious, but it was there. My mom had just remarried after having been a widow for eight years, which pretty much you know, ruined my career as the little man of the house. She didn't need me like she used to need me, and I think I was wondering whether she loved me like she used to love me. Both my sister and I were. After all, she spent so much time with him now. She even slept with the same, in the same bed with him. Yuck. Our little family had been broken into, and my mother had, fall, it's like she had fallen in love with the burglar. He, he stole her heart. Some of you know what, the, what that's like. And if you do, you need to know that there's a deeper love awaiting you, just like it was me, the love we'll talk about today. But out of all that, I said, Mom, which would it be, you or me? And I'll never forget her answer. It wasn't just her words, it was her tears. 
I found out later that she went through hell. I put her through hell. She ended up worrying that that's where I would go because I had fallen away from the faith. She, she said it was harder than being a widow. And she saw it coming when I asked her that question. And she knew what she was saying, I think, when blinking back her tears, she answered, she answered, of course, Brian, I'd go. I'd go there for you. And I knew she would. And from that day on, even through my rebellious years, deep down, that it was like an anchor for my soul uh, as I thought and thought about that answer. And today we'll see what it can do for you, the same that it did for me. Because it wasn't just her. It's not just her that feels that way about me. It's someone else that we can all meet. It was an answer that's worth thinking about because it shows something about God's love that we so need to let sink in and that the world needs to see through us. We come today to a passage where the Apostle Paul says the same thing. He says something that tells us more about him than about those he'd die for. And as we'll see, it says more about Christ even than about him. Because Section two of the book of Romans is all about God's dying passion for the gospel to be nationalized among his chosen people as seen in verses one to five in the heart of Paul. Now, if you think about it, this section, section two, flows very naturally from section one, the verse we ended with a year ago. The famous words in Romans 8, 39, who shall separate us from the love of God, Paul asks. Would he go to hell for our sake? And Paul says, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor things present, nor things to come, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. End of section one. Well, if that's true, then the natural question would be, what about the Jews? They sure seem to be separated. For the most part, they've been excluded from the love of God in Christ Jesus to this day. How do you explain that? And if even God's own chosen people can be separated, then what hope have we? What kind of promise is Romans 8.39? That's the context. That's the question at the end of chapter 8 that launches this section. Three chapters that deal once and for all with the Jewish question, as we call it, and with a whole lot else, as we're going to see. That's what Paul was trying to prove through these three chapters, that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ, so much so that the gospel will be nationalized even among the Jews who rejected him, but who he still loves unconditionally. So we really do come full circle today. And we'll pick it up where we left it off a year ago at the end of chapter 8 with the love of God, and it starts with Paul's love. What we see here in this introduction to these next three chapters is Paul's passion for his people. And in these verses, we see very simply a two-point message today. We see very simply its force and then its source. First, 
its force. He says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. So Paul begins by saying, I'm going to tell you something that you're probably not going to believe. But in the name of Jesus Christ, I'm shooting straight with you. I am not lying. The Holy Spirit is bearing witness with my spirit in good conscience that what I'm about to say is true. Now, what could possibly be so unbelievable that he'd have to tee it up like that? Well, it's in verse 3. That I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of the brethren, my brethren according to the flesh, the Jewish people. That is, I'd go to hell if it meant that they could go to heaven. And I am not exaggerating. Here's a man man who we can learn from as we go about engaging our world, like our final value says, as we engage our neighbors, the underserved around us, and the nations, sharing the truth of the gospel with love in action. Because we see here where this love comes from and how it can come from the heart. You know, in a lot of ways, the Apostle Paul was a modern-day Moses, and this was one of those ways. If you remember, as we put this in the context of the rest of Scripture, before we apply it, Moses felt the same way, and he said the same thing. It's in Exodus 32, 32, just after the incident of the golden calf. It says, Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, Father, forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from the book which you have written. That is, strike my name from the book of life, if that means they could be in the book of life. So it wasn't just Paul, it was also Moses. And it wasn't just for Moses to experience this, it was also for my mother. And it wasn't just for her, it's for us too, to have that kind of heartfelt love flowing through us. And today we'll see how. Such was the force of Paul's passion. And of course, the question is this, given the incredible force of it, what was its source? Well, he tells us in verses four and five, picking it up again in verse three, for I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. There's a lot in there. So let's briefly take it apart phrase by phrase because each phrase points in the same direction to the same source, to the love of God for his people who are Israelites. And what does that mean? Well, hold on to your seats. Who are Israelites to whom belong the adoption as sons. That is, God loved these people so much that he adopted them as his own children who are Israelites to whom belong the adoption of the sons and the glory 
That is, God loved these adopted children so much, he, he, he identified them with them so closely, so completely, so publicly, that his glory among the nations would stand or fall on their story. Who are Israelites, to whom belong the adoption of the sons, and the glory, and the covenant. In these days, a covenant, in those days, a covenant was what established a relationship. And here it's in the plural, to whom belong the covenants. A covenantal relationship was the closest possible relationship back then. It's even closer with us, under because we're under the new covenant. The most, it's the most unshakable, unbreakable thing in the universe. How so? Well, it's like Kay Arthur said, everything God does is based, with us, is based on covenant. When you understand how thoroughly the dynamic concept of covenants permeates everything God says in his word and does in our lives, you'll come to experience one of the most stabilizing, most freeing truths you'll ever know. In a culture in which unfaithfulness is rampant, God's fierce, ferocious loyalty toward us is the most unshakable, unbreakable thing in the universe. That's what we see here. God's fierce, ferocious loyalty towards those with whom he intends to enter into covenant, toward the elect, as we're going to see in this chapter. God loved them so much that he entered into multiple fierce, ferocious, unbreakable covenants with them. He couldn't stop renewing his relationship with these people. Who are the Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, which was a priceless treasure that would transmit the very character of God to these Israelites. To whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services. That is, God loved them so much that he gave them access to his very presence, to the most privileged service in the universe. He gave it to them by these Israelites to whom belong the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. That is, God loved them so much that he wasn't, it wasn't enough just to bless them in the present. He showered them with promises of blessings to come. These Israelites, to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services and the promises, whose are, he goes on to say, the fathers. That is, God loved them so much that he gave them a pedigree like Unlike any other, these descendants of the fathers, the founders of the faith that are the same fathers as ours, Abraham and Isaac and all the rest, he gave it to them whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh. God loved them so much that he encompassed them, not just with a pedigree in the past, but with a Legacy in the future of inestimable value because Christ himself was the offspring of the Jews. Christ in the flesh who is overall God blessed forever.
God loved them so much that God himself became their inheritance as he is ours through whom we will be blessed forever. Do you see the source of Paul's passion? It all flowed from the love of God who loved them so much that he did all that. The source of Paul's passion was God's passion for his children and especially for his lost children. It's like Susanna Wesley said. She's another one who felt the same way about her kids as my mother did. Someone asked her which of her 12 children she loved the most. She said this, and it reflected the heart of God. I love the one who's sick until he's well, the one who mourns until he's comforted, the one who's lost until he's found. And so it is with God's love. Paul's doing two things here. He's recounting the blessings of God on them. And he's identifying with the love of God for them. With what God felt about them. The incredible force of Paul's passion, which would have landed him in hell if God let it, makes sense only in light of its source. And it's made possible only because of its source. Because Paul's great sorrow and unceasing grief that would wish to be separated from Christ for their sake was the same great sorrow and unceasing grief that sent Christ to the cross to be separated from the Father in a living hell for our sake. This is nothing less than the dying love of Christ through the living heart of the apostle. Now, Paul goes on in the next three chapters to assure us that God has not abandoned his people, that indeed nothing shall separate them from the love of God either. But in a way, it really, he really didn't need to spend three chapters proving it theologically. Because here in the first five verses of those three chapters, Paul proves it personally. In his own person, we see the love that would stop at nothing, that would do anything to make sure that nothing would separate us from it. What we have here in the Apostle Paul, to sum it all up, is what one man called a spark from the fire of Christ's substitutionary love. A spark from the fire of Christ's substitutionary love. In fulfillment of Christ's prayer in John 17, 26, that the love by which you love me, Father, may be in them and I in them. That my love would be in them. And sure enough, there it was in Paul, the love, the same love, by which God so loved the world. You know, it's not coincidental that we're almost exactly halfway through the book of Romans. Eight chapters down, Eight chapters to go. Because here at almost the exact center of the very book that's all about the gospel, here at the heart of that book is a reminder and a reflection of the love that's at the heart of the gospel. 
It began with a powerful description of that love through Paul's pen at the end of chapter 8 that nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. And now, at the beginning of chapter 9, we see an actual, not just a description, but an actual incarnation of the love, not through Paul's pen, but through Paul's heart. Having explained the gospel for eight chapters, and then having extolled the love of Christ in chapter 8 that's at the heart of the gospel, at the end of those chapters, he goes on to model that same love as an example for us all. That's the application of Romans 1 to 8 if you're looking to Paul for your cue. Because that's what the first eight chapters did for him. They stirred up his passion for the, for the lost. So, what about yours? You may have seen the Pontius Puddle cartoon where one guy says, sometimes, sometimes I'd like to ask God why he lets people go to hell. The other, guy, the other guy says, what's stopping you? Why don't you ask people why he lets people go to hell? Ask God why he lets people go to hell. To which the first guy says, I'm afraid God may ask me the same question. <laughs> These eight chapters stirred up Paul's passion for the lost. So what about ours? The answer is this. It wasn't his. If you're anything like me, you know you don't have it in yourself, in and of yourself. No way. And if the problem is how far we fall from the force of this love, the solution is to draw near to the source of this love. It's like Amy Carmichael said. She was a missionary to the lepers in India. Another woman who knew this kind of love. She said, all our love flows from his heart of love. We are like little pools in the rocks when the great sea washes over them and floods them until they overflow. This is what the love of God does for us. We have no love in ourselves, and our pools would soon be empty if it were not for that great, glorious, exhaustless sea of love. And then she ends, my chief prayer is that your pools may be kept full to overflowing. If you've got Christ, you've got it in you. Probably more than you think, because Christ is in you too. Paul knew it wasn't in him. That's why he said from the get-go, this is a key part of this teaching. Back in verse 1, I'm telling you the truth in Christ, my conscience bearing witness in the Holy Spirit. That is, what I'm about to tell you is in Christ, in Christ alone, and in the Holy Spirit. Both the Spirit and the Son were in him, bearing witness to him, and working through him. He's saying, by these two in me, I'm swearing it's true. I really do feel this way about the Jews. They, they weren't natural feelings. They were supernatural. So much so that he could ha hardly believe it himself. And he wondered whether they would either. It's like he said to the Philippians, God is my witness. Again, he's trying to get them to believe something that's unbelievable. And it's the same thing. God is my witness, Philippians 1.8. How I long for you with the, very, with the very affection of Christ Jesus. The very thing is in me. 
And you've got it into you too because Christ is in you too. It happened by the same spirit that Paul had, as we saw back in Romans 5. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given us. So, as we get the rubber in the, on the road, how, how, how do we connect with him? Well, I've got a story I'd like to tell you in closing that, that brings it home to the heart. But to prepare our hearts for the Holy Spirit to do a new work there, we need first to confess our need for him. We've been seeing in Romans 7 and 8 how our repentance prepares the way for his fullness. So let's take a minute to do it right now. I thought we'd piggyback on a rich old hymn by Isaac Watts called Come, Holy Spirit, Heavenly Dove. Let's draw near to the source. It's actually a prayer. So why don't you close your eyes right now and pray it silently as I pray it out loud. Really pray it as we prepare the way of the Lord in our hearts. Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening powers, kindle a flame of sacred love in these cold hearts of ours. Look how we grovel here below, fond of these earthly toys. Our souls, how heavily they go to reach eternal joys. In vain we tune our formal songs. In vain we strive to rise. Hosanna's languish on our tongues and our devotion dies. And shall we then forever live at this poor dying rate? Our love so faint, so cold to thee, and thine to us so great. Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening powers, come shed abroad a Savior's love, and that shall kindle ours. We pray in the name of that Savior. Amen. You know, the Spirit kindles this in us in so many ways. And one of those ways is by seeing him in others. It's catchy. Because literally, in the body, we're like logs in a fire, in his fire. I said at the beginning that the first thing that came to my mind this week as I was studying this passage was my mom's answer to that question by the fire that was in her eyes. And in the end, seeing it in her stirred it in me. Just, just remembering it stirs it in me. Which is why the second thing that came to mind this week is a story about a flame, a steady flame. The flame that to this day is burning in the basement of Barracks 11 in a place called Auschwitz, the former Nazi concentration camp. It's in honor of Father Maximilian Kolbe in remembrance of the fire that burned in his heart. By the end of 1941, Auschwitz, they say, was working like a well-organized killing machine. The Nazis congratulated themselves on their efficiency. Apparently, the camp's five chimneys never stopped smoking. The stench was terrible, but the results were excellent. 8,000 Jews could be stripped. Their possessions could be confiscated for the Reich. They could be gassed and cremated, 8,000 of them, all in 24 hours, every 24 hours. 
But the only problem was the occasional prisoner who escaped. And when they were caught, as they usually were, they'd, they'd be hung with special nooses that, that, that slowly choked out their lives. A grave warning to anyone else that might be tempted to try. Well, one July night, the air was suddenly filled with the barking of dogs and the curses of soldiers and the roar of motorcycles. A man had escaped Barracks 14. The next morning, there was a peculiar tension as the ranks of the prisoners lined up for the uh, morning uh, uh, roll call. They, they saw the gallows before them, but there was no condemned man standing there. And that meant the prisoner had made it out of Auschwitz, and, it, uh, and they didn't uh, find him again. And it meant death for someone who remained. After the roll call, the camp commandant, Friche, ordered that all the barracks be dismissed except for barracks 14, where the prisoner uh, came from who had escaped. They were forced to stand for hour after hour as the summer sun uh, beat down on them. Many fainted and were dragged away. By evening, roll call, the commandant came with his sentence. He said that the fugitive had not been found, therefore 10 others would die for him in the starvation bunker. They all knew that anything would be better than that, even the gas chambers. Uh, the, the gas chambers were quick. They were even humane compared to Nazi starvation where you were denied not just food but water. Your throat would turn to paper and your, your brain would burn like fire. The commandant walked among the rows of prisoners choosing 10 victims like horses. The last one said, my poor wife, my poor children, what will they do? And he fell weeping at the commandant's feet. Suddenly there was a commotion in the ranks. A prisoner had broken out of the line and he was calling to the commandant. It was unheard of to do such a thing. You could get executed for breaking ranks. The prisoners gasped. It was their beloved father, Colby. The priest who would share his last crust of bread, of bread who comforted the dying, who heard their confessions, and who nourished their souls. No, not Father Colby. The frail priest spoke softly, even calmly. I would like to die in place of this man. Why? snapped the commandant. I am an old man, sir, and good for nothing. My life will serve no purpose. Freach glanced at the weeping prisoner, he did look stronger than this, um, uh, this old man who was standing before him. So he could still be used. The old man looked back at him when he asked, who are you? Eyewitnesses say that there was a strange huh, fire in his dark eyes. I am a Catholic priest. Ein Pfaffe, the commander snorted, and he looked at his assistant and nodded. As the ten commend, uh, condemned men, the father being the tenth, filed uh, from barracks 11, the guards pushed them down the steps to the basement. Remove your clothes, they shouted. You will dry up like tulips. And then they swung the heavy door shut. Well, as the hours and days passed, the whole camp noticed that something extraordinary was happening in that cell of ten men. 
Past prisoners had spent their days there howling, attacking each other, clawing the walls. But now, from that death box, those on the outside heard the sounds of men singing. How could that be? Here's how Chuck Colson explains it in a book he wrote called The Body. Coming from the death box, those outside heard faint sounds of singing. For this time, the prisoners had a shepherd to gently lead them through the shadows of the valley of death, pointing them to the great shepherd. And perhaps for this reason, as the prisoner who attended the death cells witnessed, Father Kolbe was the last to die with a distant look in his eyes and a smile on his face. Have you been to Auschwitz, Colson concludes? If so, you know there is a flame, a flame of hope burning in that place of death and despair. You see it when you descend the basement stairs of Barracks 11 and make your way to the death box at the end of the dim hallway. There on the floor burns a steady flame. It's a flame of remembrance, but it's not a monument to Father Maximilian Kolbe alone and the fire that burned in his eyes, hero though he was. For those with eyes to see, that flame points to the only king in history who died for his subjects, who came to save those he so loved, that they too would so love the world. So we come back full circle today from God's love in Romans 8.39 last year to Paul's love in Romans 9.1 this year, to that ember from the fire of God's love that we see in both chapters. The love that went on to burn at the heart of that death cell, of that living hell, just like it did in the heart of the apostle and so many others, because it's the heart of the gospel. Here at the heart, at the very center of the book of Romans. And that's why it's at the heart of our mission. That we seek to know and show the enduring truth and love of Jesus Christ. As a disciple making family for Loveland and the world. Amen. Lord, we want to thank you for the love that you poured out into Paul and into Moses and into Father Colby and Isaac Watts and Amy Carmichael and Susanna Wesley and Ruth Myers. Thank you that that same love was poured out from the cross into all our hearts who believe. Stoke it up in us, Lord. Do that as we stand here at the threshold of the next chapter in the life of this church for the sake of Loveland and the world. Help us to look to you so this could happen. Come, Holy Spirit, heavenly dove, with all thy quickening powers, kindle a flame of sacred love in these cold hearts of ours. 
Help us now not just to sing, but to turn to you as we confess these truths through our worship so that we could be filled by you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.